taking a look from a just a high big view 30,000 foot view of the Old Testament and some of the details that go with that and uh, tonight we're actually going to finish the we're going to finish the Old Testament tonight and uh, maybe it won't surprise you too much when we do that but um, and then we're going to come back in the next two lessons next two weeks Lord willing and and finish out the Old Testament in the writings and uh, that means we got to cover the the wisdom books of the Old Testament are sometimes called the writings and then also cover the prophets so we'll look at those the next two weeks and then at the end of November uh, we're going to take the last two lessons before we conclude the year and talk a little bit about events in the Middle East and uh, try to put some biblical and historical perspective to what's happening there and uh, the historical going all the way back to Bible times and what's happened since so um, that'll be two lessons. One will be the biblical view of what's happening in the Middle East, and the other one's going to be the historical view of what's happening in the Middle East. So you can have maybe a little perspective to all these news reports we're watching and websites we're reading, and certainly um, we watch with a bit of a biblical lens in mind as we're thinking about prophecy and how things are, are fitting together. I'm sure you've had conversations. I had one today. Um, people asking about what's going on in the Middle East and how do you put some perspective to this. So our goal will be to do that the last two uh, Sunday nights in November, and then we'll, we'll close down Bible study groups in the evening for all the events of December, and then uh, come back in January and set our sights on a new study. So uh, that's our plan as we move forward. Um, let's see, remind you of just a few announcements of some things coming up. Uh, we'll be back here Wednesday night uh, for our midweek service. We have a missionary with us from the Philippines who will be here uh, really the last part of the week he's going to be staying here at the church for a few days with his family and uh, so come and hear the work the Lord is doing through this ministry and then uh, next week pretty normal schedule both of Sunday morning and Sunday evening nothing much out of the ordinary it is the first of November uh, the one big event next week don't forget this right is time change and uh, so that'll be next Saturday night going into Sunday morning this is the time change we like we get a little extra later start to the day so we tolerate this one, all right. And then uh, certainly as you're picking up the Weekly Connect, you'll start to see today we have all of our December events in there. So you can start to get things on your calendar and know how to plan. And we hope you'll uh, be a part of uh, all the activities here for another exciting December for sure. Well, uh, with those things in mind, let's pray and uh, commit our time to the Lord. And we'll take a look at uh, three books tonight. And or at least, go again, kind of give an overview of these three books and see how they fit together to finish up the uh, Old Testament for us. So let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this beautiful day you've given to us. Indeed, a beautiful week in so many ways. Your hand of, of majesty and creation are just obvious all around us. And we thank you for the beauty of the season and uh, for this time of year. And I thank you for the many blessings we've seen in our church uh, through our prayer list. You've answered many prayers. We saw people here this morning that are evidence of that. And I pray that uh, you'll continue to guide and direct as we, uh, through our study of the Old Testament, get a little perspective to not only things the Bible teaches us, but uh, current events that are happening all around us and in the world today that we're following. Uh, we ask, Lord, that you will bless each of the Bible study groups that are gathered tonight, from the youngest to the oldest. And uh, may your word find a resting place in each heart. Uh, draw us closer to you and help us to understand the Bible more that we may understand your work in our lives and what you would do for us. We'll give you thanks for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, when we think about um, the Old Testament, one of the things that's difficult with our current listing of the Bible is to sort of go through a chronological or event-by-event -event timeline. 
And before we finish this subject, in a couple of weeks, I'll show you a couple of resources if this interests you that you can pursue. But I'm trying to go over each week a little bit of a timeline of the Old Testaments from where we've come from. So we're near the end, so we almost get through this list tonight. So let's talk a little bit about the Old Testament history in a chronological order. Now, to begin with, when you read the Old Testament, it is mostly not in chronological order. From Genesis, you're good, all the way up through the books of the Chronicles. That's, that's pretty good linear chronological history. But then things get a little jumbled at the end. The reason is the tradition became in Bible books, particularly the Old Testament. Remember, if you're here with tonight, I'll re recap a little bit of that history of the Bible. The Bible was originally recorded in scroll form. And in those scrolls, you've got scrolls, and you've got scrolls on top of scrolls. In no particular order, just here they are. When the work that would become writing from scrolls to writing in something more like a book called a codex, now we've got to make some decisions. Which book goes with, in which order? The tradition of the Jewish scriptures, as we would call the Old Testament, is to maintain that sort of a timeline order. So in the Hebrew, Old, the Hebrew scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, you have three divisions. You have the law, which would basically be with Genesis through Deuteronomy. You have the historical books, or the, uh, um, the historical and prophetic books, starting with Joshua and going through the prophets in sequence and time order. And then at the very end, you have the writings, or the wisdom books, as we'll call them. So the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, has a sequence to it that makes a lot more sense. As time and centuries would pass, and people started translating the scripture, that order became a bit mixed up, especially at the end. So, when you talk about what's at the end of your Old Testament, we talk about the prophets. You have the, which we'll talk about them in more detail in two weeks, but the prophets, the major prophets, minor prophets, 16 in total. The other books are kind of scattered. That tradition just hung around. And when people started copying Bibles to Bibles and books to books of the Bible, they kept them in the same order. The Hebrew scriptures have the very exact same writings that we have in our Old Testament. They're just in different order. And some of them are combined. So there's only 20-some books in the Hebrew Old Testament of the Jews because they combine things. First and Second Kings are one book, not two. First and Second Chronicles, one book, not two. First and Second Samuel, one book, not two. The 12 minor prophets are actually one book in the Hebrew Old Testament. So you get a, a different sequence, but it's the exact same material. And so when we today pick up our Bible and begin reading, as you want to do from beginning to end, you're really reading out of order. You're good for the first eight or ten books, but then it sort of jumps around a bit. And when you look at the Old Testament history, it's important to look at it through the, the chronicle of time. So let's kind of walk our way through this, going all the way back to Genesis. Uh, the pre-Abraham history, there's a lot of different names for this, um, is Genesis 1 through 11. And the major events there, right? Can you think through them with me? The creation in chapter 1, more detail in chapter 2 of the creation, particularly the creation of Adam and Eve. 
chapter 3, the Garden of Eden and the, the, uh, the rebellion of Adam and Eve against the law of God. Chapter 4 is the story of Cain and Abel primarily and the uh, murder that occurs there. It doesn't take long for sin to show its ugly head, does it? Chapter 4. Chapter 5 is the genealogy, see, uh, the genealogy from Adam. Chapter 6 begins the account of the flood of Noah. That's chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8. A lot of detail there, and, and uh, sometime we'll, we'll spend some time in that detail. It's worth looking at for sure. And then in chapter 9, it's the events after the flood. It's when Noah comes off the ark. It's the account of the Noahic covenant, where God establishes a rainbow as a covenant of promise that the world will never again be destroyed by water. It's the events of uh, the post-flood. A little few details given to us there. Chapter 10 is another genealogy chapter. This is genealogy primarily dealing with the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and the, the, uh, what's sometimes called the uh, lineage of nations. And you establish those three lineage paths to be able to follow the, the people group that are descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Do you know which one you're descendant of? Let me scan the multitudes. Yes, all of you, all of us here, are descendants of the Japheth line. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Why? Because we are of, in some form, European heritage. European, East European, Russia even. Uh, if you notice the Russians look a lot like us, right? Japheth is the lineage we come from out of Noah's three sons. That is the genealogy of chapter 10. Chapter 11 is the account of the Tower of Babel, or Babel, depends on the tomato, tomato, right? Um, depends on how you look at the, the pronunciation, but the accounts given to us there where God establishes another judgment. The people did not disperse. If you go back and read chapter 9, God said to scatter throughout the land. They did not. They instead said, we will build a tower and make a name for ourselves. And God's judgment was a confusion of the languages, and that caused them to spread. And when they spread, they started going in different directions, Right? And we can follow the paths of history, both biblical and extra-biblical, or outside the Bible history, and we can see the lineage of the Shemites, the Hamites, and the Japhethites and the directions they go to. So there's Genesis 1 through 11. That time frame doesn't take you long to read that, but it covers um, somewhere in the range of about 2,000 years uh, when you put all the sequence together. Where do you get those numbers from? You go back and read the genealogies. The genealogies are important because what's true of the genealogies? We're told the age of every, every, every generation, father to son, to son to son, and every generation, and you go back and do the math and, and go look it up online. There's plenty of people who have done this, uh, beginning with a, a Bible researcher back in the um, 1700s, I suppose, 1600s, uh, named James Usher. He was the first to publish a list of all these and the math that goes with it. So you go from creation to, to about Abraham. You're pretty close to a couple thousand years in nice round numbers. Uh, then we get in chapter 12. We're, we're reintroduced to Abraham. Abram, as he's called in the first time we're mentioned before the Lord changes his name, is the first of Israel's patriarchs. And again, the word patriarch just simply means fathers, the founding fathers of Israel, beginning with Abraham, and of course, Isaac and Jacob would follow. Those are the three patriarchs of Israel. We're introduced to Abram, actually, in the genealogy. 
And we're told we're introduced to him there, but then we pick the account up in chapter 12 uh, to see him as Abram from Ur of the Chaldees and how his life is moved by God and the things that he encounters. And uh, he is a story unto himself for sure. So we finish Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the sons of Jacob, the most, the most uh, priorities given to uh, Joseph. And we close chapter 50 in Genesis at the death of Joseph. Then we quickly turn over to Exodus, and we're, and we're, we're suddenly introduced to a new situation, a new, in many ways, a new Egypt. We're in Egypt when you close chapter uh, 50 of Genesis, and we're also in Egypt when you open chapter 1 of Exodus, but it's two very different Egypts, different ruler, different king. The Bible even makes mention of that. And now the Hebrews have gone from being a favored identity among the Egyptians because they, they saw the work that God had done through Joseph to being a despised name among the Egyptians. And now the Hebrews are nothing more than just a servant class. The term slavery is often used there, and in many ways it could, it could be well described, but it's not slavery like we think of in other uh, arenas of history. This was a, a sort of a self-imposed slave uh, environment they were in, or servant environment they were in, because they were the, considered the lowest class. And we find ourselves quickly coming across the story of Moses and uh, the, the deliverance his parents brought forth, uh, Pharaoh had sent the word out to kill all of the male children when they were born, and the midwives did not. And uh, they saw God's hand in the birth in every live birth and every child, and so they, they preserved this. And his mother preserved him for as long as she could, but eventually a baby's going to make his presence known. And so uh, Moses gets put into that, into that uh, little basket and put in the Nile River, uh, to be rescued by none other than uh, the family of Pharaoh. And so he's raised in that. Whether you've read it in the scripture or seen the movies, and there's plenty of them, uh, you understand a little bit of that story. Moses is raised up then to be the man who God will use to deliver the children of Israel from their, from their uh, captivity. That's recorded for us, including all the plagues in uh, Exodus 1 through 18. We get to, Moses grows up very quickly in scripture. We're introduced to him as a child. He's born in chapter 1. By the time we're in chapter 3, he's at the burning bush there on Mount Sinai. And, um, and so it moves very quickly. And then, of course, the uh, movement of Moses back to Pharaoh to make God's declaration of let my people go. And the, soon after the plagues that set in, uh, culminating in the Passover, uh, which completes the uh, process of getting the people of, of uh, the Hebrews out from the Egyptians. They then leave and they work their way back to the mountain where God had revealed himself to Noah and uh, they come back to Mount Sinai. And they will stay there uh, for quite a while, a uh, better part of a couple of years or so. And while there, God will give the rest uh, of the account of recorded for us in Exodus of his laws, including the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. And you will see the rest of the, uh, the work of God giving the laws of how to be a people. When you think of what's happening there at the mount, understand God is trying to get into the minds and hearts of his people how to be a nation. They had never known what it was to be a nation. They had grown up, as their ancestors had done, for hundreds of years just being a slave class. And now God has to reformulate their thinking and their mindset, how to establish laws of how they treat one another and how they should live together and how they should worship him. God establishes the tabernacle and the priest 
in Exodus. By the time we get to Leviticus, now we have the entirety of all the, all the laws that are established for the priest, how they should exercise their duties, how they should distinguish um, uh, different types of diseases, how they make food, was a term we would use, kosher, a Jewish term, uh, how they decide what foods can and can't be eaten, how they set up marriage laws, who can marry who. Uh, they also establish the feast and they establish um, the sacrifices. And so there's a lot of things in Leviticus that, again, God is trying to institute into their minds and hearts what it means to serve and worship him. It's Leviticus. Numbers, now it's time to leave. It's finally time to leave Mount Sinai. They've got all this information God has given them. He's given them their commands. He's established and affirmed Moses as a leader. So from uh, Exodus all the way through Numbers 9, 10, right in there, they're getting ready in Numbers 10. By Numbers 10, they're leaving uh, Mount Sinai. Where are they going? They're headed to the Promised Land. And so they're moving north up the Sinai Peninsula, up today what we would know as west, or east rather, of the Jordan River, working their way to the Promised Land. But they get to a place called Kadesh Barnea, and now it's time to make a decision. No turning back from this point. We either go forward or we don't. And the conclusion of the testimony of the spies, those 12 spies that went into the Promised Land, 10 came back and said, we can't do it. And two came back and said, we can do it with God's help. And the people made a decision. We will not go into this promised land. We're walking into self-instituted um, uh, self uh, suicide. And we do not want to die there. Not, not to those people. So they made a decision to reject God's offer for the promised land and his presence to go with them there. And they were judged now to walk 40 years in the wilderness, the wilderness wanderings, we often call them. And that wilderness travels will take us from Numbers all the way into the early chapters of Joshua. That's the rest of Numbers and then the entirety of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is an entire book recorded for us, the words of Moses. The words of Moses to a new generation. Remember that first generation that had turned their back on God died in the wilderness. And now it's time for a new generation to hear from Moses their call to be God's people. And that's all Deuteronomy is. I'll say that's all. It's a very important, very important book. And um, it's a book that we sometimes don't go to as quickly as we should, probably. The Jews knew how important that was. Jesus himself knew how important that was. He often quotes Deuteronomy. And in the process, we follow this, this new generation working their way up the eastern side of the Jordan River, and Joshua will lead them into the Promised Land as they will cross the Jordan River. And this generation will see a similar miracle. God will hold back the waters of the Jordan River while they march across. The priests will be standing in the riverbed holding the Ark of the Covenant as a symbol of, power, of God's power and presence, and they will walk across into the Promised Land. And most of us have heard the story. What's their first encounter? The city of Jericho. In God's plan, you, you want God to demonstrate his presence with you, his power over uh, the Canaanite peoples? Then march around this city once a day. On the seventh day, march around seven times. And on that seventh time, uh, lift up your voice in a great shout of praise and watch God at work and his, the walls crumble down. And that's their introduction to the promised land in God's presence. The rest of Joshua is about the encounters and the battles that they face. It's not the entirety of every battle. A lot of the battles, time-wise, are at the beginning of their experience in the Promised Land and at the end. And at the end of Joshua, the book of Joshua, Joshua himself will die. The people have been scattered 
now into their assigned properties. Uh, and uh, your Bible probably has a map in the back of those properties of each of the tribes where, they're to, where they're to, they were to take possession. And Joshua dies. What happens to the leadership of Israel? It's not concentrated anymore in one person because the tribes are all scattered. So the tribes, among the tribes, there rises up those who will take leadership role, and those are the judges. So in the promised land, you have the rest of Joshua. You have the entirety of the book of Judges, of which there are 13 judges by name mentioned. We know more about some of them. We know the name Gideon. We know the name Samson. We might know the name Deborah and Barak. Um, and so there's some of those judges. And judges are regional leaders. They are not judicial men in black robes sitting behind a big desk. They are like governors, and they have both political and uh, judicial duties. And again, the judges is about a cycle. Every time you read about a judge, it's because the people have fallen into a cycle. They, they get comfortable, number one, and they start worshiping the false gods, and they're mentioned in judges. They start worshiping the false deities. God sends judgment because of their turning their back on him and his word. And then what do they do? They cry out to God, bring us deliverance. And God raises up a judge from among them who will be a great leader. Gideon's a great example. Samson, same type story. They're always raised up and God uses them to push away the invaders and to bring peace to the land. And it seems like for a generation or two, the people rejoice. God has delivered. He has brought us great bounty, and we rejoice in his goodness. But then a generation arises that has forgotten God again, and they go back, and the cycle continues over and over. It's the same story, same plot line uh, through each of the accounts in Judges. It's also during the time of Judges that you have the account of Ruth, and it's during that time of judgment when uh, Naomi and uh, her husband will leave because there's famine in the land. So it's, Ruth is tied in with the time of the judges. And we follow the judges all the way up through into the book of 1 Samuel. Eli, where he opened 1 Samuel with Eli, the, the, the uh, priest, the judge. And then soon after will be Eli's trainee, Samuel, who will be a great, the last great judge and a great prophet himself, uh, are described to us. The transition then takes place where among the people they select a king. And uh, we're told of Saul there in 1 Samuel chapter 9. A man named Saul becomes the king, and he is anointed and appointed to be this position. Saul is a classic example of someone who starts well. You have many admirable characteristics. You have a, a heart who seeks to do God's will and to recognize God's blessings on their land. But he gets distracted. Political, personal, he gets distracted, and pretty soon he's way off the rails regarding his relationship with God, and that brings about judgment not only to Saul, but to the people. Who are the enemies? I mentioned this briefly last week. Who are the enemies of the Israelites at this time? It's not the Egyptians. They're way in the rearview mirror by now. It's the Philistines. The Philistines, we're told in the books of Samuel, establish themselves along the coastline of southern Israel, as we know it, just north of Egypt. The Philistines will establish five cities, or mentioned for us in the scriptures. Um, and one of those five is named Gaza. Right out of the news today, the Gaza Strip. 
Ashkelon was another city. Ashdod was another. Those cities are still on the map today in that very same region. The term Philistine identified a people group who were not from the Middle East. They came to that region from Eastern Europe. And they settled along the coastline and established their cities. And they were a warlike people. They sought more land and more possession. And that's why they were such a thorn to the Hebrews. It's their promised land, but these people know nothing of that. They know nothing of the God of Israel. They have their own God named Dagon, and they worship him. He's part fish and part human. And the Bible tells us lots about, about their lives, but they were constantly at battle. Saul will die following the battle with the Philistines, as did, as did two of his sons. Shortly after, as word gets back, the Philistines have defeated the army of Israel. The Philistines have taken the Ark of the Covenant. And they've brought it back and put it in the temple of their God, the Philistines. The Philistines will occupy this land for many centuries as Philistines. For many centuries. They will be enemies of Israel for centuries to come. We see them in Judges. We see them... Saul is battling the Philistines. David will battle the Philistines, right? Who was Goliath? A Philistine in um, chapter 18. Um, the Philistines will battle Solomon. They will be, they will be quite a, a problem. But they too will sort of fade into the background as other empires rise up. We'll mention a couple of those before we finish. But the Philistines remain there. As time will pass and the centuries pass, the Greeks will take control. The Greek Empire under Alexander the Great in the fourth century will take control of the Middle East. And in the Greek language, they will call the Philistines the Palestinians. Sound familiar? Right? I mean, it's right on the news today. And so that's where the name or the land of Palestine comes from. It's where the name Palestinian comes from. It has a Greek origin based upon the name Philistines from the Old Testament. And the Gaza Strip, again, representing that Philistine history of that region of the world. So to know some of the Old Testament catches you up with some of what's happening in the news today. We'll talk more about that in a few weeks. So in that promised land, you have this time of the judges until you get to the kingdoms of the kingdom of Israel under the monarchy of three names that we know well. Saul, who at his death, eventually David will become the next king, the next great king. There was a little bit of a power struggle, as there all often is. But David will eventually become the king. And, of course, his reign will be extended into the life of Solomon. And under David, and even more so under Solomon, Israel will know great wealth, influence, power. It will indeed be the uh, the power of influence through the region. And Solomon, in his wisdom, right? We think of Solomon's wisdom. Um, and the empire of Israel or the nation of Israel will have great influence in the region. Indeed, be a testimony to those around them. But at Solomon's death, we looked at last week, something will happen. The kingdom, rightly, was passed from Solomon. The kingship was passed from Solomon to his son, Rehoboam. But remember Rehoboam's dilemma? 
the people come to him and say, you've got to be easier on us. Don't put such a heavy government burden on us. In other words, don't tax us so much. You know, our 401ks are going in the, in the tubes. Our IRAs are doing terrible. You can't tax us this much, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam took advice from two groups, an older group who were the counselors of his father and his generation, and the younger group of his generation. He followed the advice of the younger group, which was, indeed, make the burden heavy. Show them who's boss. Be the heavy hitter in this discussion, and you'll never have to worry about a threat to your kingdom. That decision turned much of Israel uh, away from wanting to follow Rehoboam, and the kingdom split. The kingdom divided. Rehoboam would become the king of just two of the tribes in southern Israel, Judah and Benjamin. The other ten tribes separated and said they would not follow Rehoboam, and they called in a man who used to be a counselor to Solomon. He did not have the family lineage of Solomon, but he was a counselor of Solomon. His name was Jeroboam. Jeroboam was very popular among the people, so popular, in fact, that Solomon exiled him because I think he was afraid that he would, he would overthrow his kingdom. And Jeroboam went to Egypt for exile. But when the tribes split, they sent word to Jeroboam, will you come and rule us? And indeed, Jeroboam stepped into that. Jeroboam was not godly. And all of the 20 kings that would follow him, or the 19 that would follow him, 20 including himself, were not godly kings at all. And the northern kingdom, called Israel, will be a kingdom that is very much corrupted and polluted with the worship of the gods of the day. I'm, we mentioned them last week. Um, there was Ashtaroth, who's a female deity. There was Baal, and there was Moloch. And they go back and read, starting in Judges, and you'll see what the Scripture says. The people worshipped Baal. They worshipped at the groves, is a term that's often used in the Scripture, which references the worship place of Ashtaroth, the female deity. And the people of the northern tribes were corrupted with their worship. And God would bring judgment upon them. And starting in 732 B.C., the Assyrian nation, on its way to becoming the Assyrian Empire, would, in, would begin an invasion of the northern parts of Israel, the northern promised land. And the Assyrian Empire um, would invade that would last t a 10 years war. And at the end of that 10 years, they would be in captivity under, this, under the oppression of the Assyrian Empire. Yes, it sounds similar to Syria, right? Again, similar players, different names. The kingdom in its division would also leave the southern kingdom with 20 kings over time. But some of those kings were godly. And in their godly rule, they turned the people back to the ways of God, to his word, to the testimony of what they should have been and God in times blessed them because of their following his commands but again most of the kings of the south were also not godly and that too would bring its judgment and the southern kingdom in 
uh, would, uh, a siege of the southern kingdom would be completed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonian kingdom under Nebuchadnezzar. And the southern kingdom would be taken under captivity. I'll mention more about both those in just a moment. So the divided kingdom. Israel now remains in captivity. And shortly after, Judah. Remember, the southern kingdom, though, will last 130 or so years longer than the northern kingdom. Again, because of those good kings. And you see a principle there. You hear a principle, I trust. A nation's desire to follow God in God's truth, in God's kingdom, brings God's blessings. That is not new to that generation. It is not new to this generation. It was first laid out for us in the scriptures in Deuteronomy chapter 28. But the people forgot that. So the captivity is now. The promised land is no longer occupied by any, dict by any rule of, of Jewish descent. The Assyrians control the north and the peoples there, and the Babylonians control the south. Here's the map of what that would look like. The green there being the northern kingdoms, and are the northern kingdom that was overthrown by the Assyrian Empire. What happened to these ten tribes? These ten tribes go into captivity by the Assyrians, and they lose their identity. They intermarry a generation after generation after generation. They just lose their identity. And they are, if you, the, you hear the term, the lost ten tribes of Israel, that's those ten tribes. No one of any descent knows their heritage, which of the tribes they're from. Not so in the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom would remain in captivity of the Babylonians for 70 years. Who are the Babylonians? The Babylonians, the Babylonian Empire, we would know as modern-day Iraq. So again, different name, same, same players, just different names. The Iraqis come in and invade southern Israel under Nebuchadnezzar II, and they will take those people into captivity. So let's look at both of these just for a moment. Israel taken captivity in Assyria, they just were lost. Those identities and those heritage, and that Jewish heritage especially was lost. Now, some who would return or some who remained in northern Israel would become a people that we also know by name in the Bible as the Samaritans. We think of the Samaritans in the New Testament, the Gospels particularly. Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. And Jesus with the Samaritans, the story of the good Samaritan. To the Jews, there were no good Samaritans. Samaritans play an important role in understanding the ministry of Christ to the nation of Israel, all of Israel, whether you were able to identify your heritage as a Jew or whether you were not. Christ comes to all, right? So the Samaritans are introduced to us in the New Testament. They are the descendants of this captivity from the Assyrians that remain living in the land. They will establish their king, or their central, their capital rather, in Samaria. So uh, in the city of Samaria. So that plays an important history. Again, to know some of this means to open the New Testament with some knowledge about what's happening in the gospel accounts, particularly. So there's Israel, the northern ten tribes, taken to captivity. And the account there again finished, they, that completed a war 
in 722 B.C. The completion of the war from the Babylonians was completed in 586 B.C. Judah is taken into captivity by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. And here they are. This is an image, by the way. This painting uh, hangs in the, uh, uh, in the Museum of Israel. Uh, and it displays the people of Israel leave. There's Jerusalem in the background. If you can see enough detail, better on this on the back uh, than what's in the back. If you see enough detail in the, in, the, in the background of that painting, you see Jerusalem. And you see the smoke coming up. The Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. And they took all the gold and all the vessels of gold, took it all back to, to their land. They also took multitudes of people, and they became enslaved. They were war captives of the Iraqis, or as, we, as the Bible says, the Babylonians. Again, same characters, same people groups, just different names. We particularly know of some who were in that group as young men, as many young men and young women would have been taken by the Babylonians, uh, because we read the book of Daniel. One of the, the, uh, the realities of Daniel is Daniel is part of this time of the captivity. And when Daniel, when you read the book of Daniel, you open it up to Daniel and his three friends being young men. They were, they were, men of, they were young men of good physical uh, character. They, would, they, they demonstrated intelligence. They were going to make them into Babylonians. And their names got changed. We know their, funny thing is, we know their Babylonian names more than we know their Hebrew names, right? Because we know the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are Babylonian names for these Hebrew boys. They tried to make them into Babylonians. But remember, there they're told, we won't eat, we won't eat food from idols, from a pagan king. Let us eat beans and water and bread, right? Pretty restrictive diet. Because we put our faith in God. There's so many great stories about Daniel. Great, uh, great accounts to read and teach to young people for sure. But that's part of this captivity while they're there. And Daniel rises in the ranks. It's also his three friends that are cast into the, into the fiery furnace for refusing to bow and worship the idol. It is Daniel put into the lion's den. We know these stories. These all happen under the, under the dictatorship of Nebuchadnezzar. It's something interesting about the book of Daniel, though. It's not just historical. It's also prophetic. In Daniel chapter 2, the king awakes with a dream in mind of a great statue. Remember that? Daniel chapter 2. In that statue, no one can understand the dream. No one can even say what the dream is. The king is, is serious about finding out about this dream. They put a lot of emphasis upon dreams. He was serious about finding out about this dream. So he told his soothsayers and his wise men, I had a dream. It was a terrible dream. Tell me what it means. They asked the obvious question. Sure, king, tell us your dream and we will interpret it. Well, anybody can do that. He said, no, I will not tell you my dream. If you're so smart, you tell me what my dream was. That's a pretty big challenge for sure. Obviously, they could not. Word came that there's this one Hebrew who seems to have insight and wisdom from God. Maybe he can do something. So Daniel is called. And Daniel rightly says what the dream is and what the meaning is. 
Old great king, live forever, he says. You saw a great statue of a man, as it was of a man. His head was of gold, his chest and his arms of silver, his midsection of brass, his legs of iron and clay, or his legs of iron and his feet of iron and clay. Wow, that's it, Daniel. We're on to something here. What does that mean? And Daniel says, O king, thou art that head of gold. I had to make Nebuchadnezzar feel good. He, ru he runs the most powerful kingdom in his time, the Babylonian kingdom. And indeed, Nebuchadnezzar was a very powerful ruler, dictator. And again, the story of Nebuchadnezzar is interesting to follow through the book of Daniel. I won't chase that rabbit trail right now. But what happens is, this is a prophecy from this dream of the succeeding Gentile kingdoms. Babylon is that head of gold. The silver, a little less valuable, a little less powerful, a little less influential, but nonetheless a second kingdom, will be the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And the Medes and the Persians will overthrow the Babylonian Empire. It must have sounded like a, a far-fetched fairy tale at that point. Who's going to overthrow this great empire? But indeed, it does happen. That empire will likewise be overthrown by a third empire, a little less powerful, a little less valuable, but nonetheless an empire. That will be the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, which will go from the mid-4th century to the mid-2nd century. That empire will be overtaken also by another empire, the Roman Empire. We know something of the Roman Empire. From the fall of the Greek Empire about the mid-2nd century all the way to the fall of the Roman Empire in the 5th century after Christ. And then there will be this feat of iron and clay, the least valuable, the least organized, the least consistent. And that's a revived Roman Empire that many who study prophecy will say rep is represented today by the European uh, Commonwealth. And the European, language, the European countries, less organized, less consistent, but nonetheless bound together by a political unity. And so the European market, European commonwealth, uh, represents that, many would say, today. That is setting the stage for the end times that you turn from Daniel all the way to the book of Revelations and kind of pick up the account there and see the parallels. By the way, if you study prophecy, or if you, if you find many books on prophecy, the two primary books talked about, a lot, there's a lot of prophetic books, but the two that always pair together well are Daniel and Revelation. In Bible colleges, when a student takes a course in prophecy, they're going to study Daniel and Revelation. And we'll talk about the other prophets in a, in a couple of weeks and their place in that, but end time Revelation um, and Daniel are best represented in a pair together. So this, out, this lays out the empires for centuries to come. I mean, we're talking about a time that's in about uh, 500 B.C. Basically, this dream and this prophecy will cover the next thousand years of the Mediterranean region, of the Gentiles, those who do not have a heritage within the Jews or the Arabs. There will be a following empire that follows Rome. That's the Ottoman Empire. But the Ottoman Empire is not an empire of 
European or Middle Eastern Gentile uh, nations. It's an empire of the Arabs. And that uh, empire will last until the end of World War I in 1919. And so, again, a little history gives some perspective on all the things there. Who are these groups of, who are these nations? Again, Babylon is modern-day Iraq, not in the same boundaries, but it's the same people. The Medes and Persians, the Persians are the modern-day Iranians. Iranians and Iraqis have very different heritage. The Iranians are the Persians of history. They're the ones that Alexander the Great had to conquer. Uh, the Medes and the Persians. So um, we'll see them here in just a minute again, too. And, of course, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, and then the divided empire of end times. It's there. This statue, by the way, is tumbled by a great uh, uh, asteroid, we might say, a rock from heaven that crushed it at its feet, and the whole thing falls. What does that represent? The end time coming of Christ, who will put it into all earthly kingdoms. So again, you can chase a rabbit trail down prophecy with this pretty easy. I'll, I'll avoid that. I'm the wrong person for that, right? One of the accounts that's, that's in this same time frame, right? So we go from the Babylonian Empire. Do you remember the Babylonian Empire falling in the book of Daniel? Where a king named um, Belteshazzar who is a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, has this great feast. And he calls even for the gold goblets of the Jews. Take all those things that my grandfather took away from Jerusalem. Let's bring them into this drunken party. And the handwriting appears on the wall many years later. Who do they call in to interpret that handwriting? Daniel. Many, many Tekeus Farson, it says. Interpreted by Daniel and Daniel alone. O king, you have been found weighed in the balances and lacking. Your kingdom will fall. And before the night was over, the kingdom would fall. Before the 24 hours was over, the king was dead. And a new king, a Persian king, Cyrus, would take control. And the new empire would, be, would begin to be established. It is during the empire of the Persians that we have the biblical story of Esther. Again, not a, a name we're familiar with, and maybe a little bit of a story we're familiar with. You remember Esther? The king needed a new wife, and he holds a beauty contest. Just really summarize it fast, right? And he selects, it wasn't a selection of the judges, he selected this woman, this beautiful woman that caught his eye named Esther. She becomes queen, and the power and the privilege and the influence that goes with it. But there was a secret at the very heart of Esther. She was Jewish. And the Persians didn't have much use for the Jews. Matter of fact, there were those in the, in the king's cabinet who had no use for the Jews. You remember that story involving Esther and her uncle and the king's assistant who wanted to get rid of all the Jews and slaughter them all. And Esther, that frame, a famous phrase for Esther, thou has been that has been brought here or that has been raised up for such a time as this. She goes to the king and says, King, if you go through, basically, if you go through with slaughtering the Jews, you will have to kill me, for I am Jewish also. And put a stop to that discussion, right? And Esther, that's the story of Esther. It happens during that Persian Empire. And um, uh, Artaxerxes, the king there. So you have 
you have these types of things happening sort of in the background. I'm glad the Bible has those stories. You see God's providential hand, and that story's been referenced. By the way, from the account of Esther, uh, there is a, uh, a new Jewish festival. There's a, the, the ones God gave in Leviticus have been added to with two festivals, and one of them represents the time when the Jews were delivered from their slaughter by the, by the hand of God through the, through the work of Esther, through the voice of Esther in preserving that. So uh, that's, that's an interesting little historical side note that goes along here too. Eventually, the, 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 Persian, the Persian Empire, which controlled Israel, which controlled Jerusalem, we find a book in the Old Testament called Nehemiah. Nehemiah happens during the time of the Persian Empire also. Jerusalem lay in ruins. And Nehemiah, a Jew himself who had risen in prominence in the face of the king, has Jewish heritage. And all he's heard of is about the homeland of Jerusalem and Israel, but he's never been there. And it made him desire to, to see Israel built back up. And the account of Nehemiah is the story of the king, the Persian king, giving Nehemiah permission and giving him money and resources and people to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. Do you think it's because the Persian king has sympathy to the Jews? Uh, maybe a little bit, a small bit. I tend to think he saw maybe here's an opportunity to do what? Make money. After all, if we build this city back up, maybe I can charge more taxes. I need a new collection point west of my kingdom. Maybe Jerusalem can be that for me. For whatever the reason, you can read between the lines and speculate yourself. Nehemiah is allowed to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the walls, the gates, the 12 gates around the city that had laid in ruins for many decades. And that's the account of Nehemiah. It's a great story. Things happen very quickly in Nehemiah. And in just a matter of weeks, they actually have some of the walls done, and they can celebrate and rejoice in that. And they continue to work to rebuild Jerusalem. But Jerusalem, remember, is more than just a city. It's a center of Jewish worship. It's the city of the heritage of David and Solomon and the glory of Israel past. And so there was, a, there was a, another group that came in following Nehemiah, led by a priest named Ezra, of which there's a book in the Old Testament named Ezra. Ezra tells the account of how he goes back and re, rebuilds the process of the priestly duties in Jerusalem. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, we're told this account of, of Ezra standing and I referenced this on Wednesday night, so it's a little fresh in my mind. Ezra standing to read the word of God before the people. The people stood up from morning till noon just to hear the word of God being read. They hadn't heard. They probably heard their great-grandparents, their grandparents say, well, when I was young, we heard God's word read from the temple. They'd never heard it. And here they are standing back in Jerusalem. The city's been somewhat rebuilt and will be re rebuilt back up to more. And so they're back in Jerusalem where are we time-wise? We're about 400 years before Christ. This is the last historical event. Nehemiah and Ezra, by the way, in the Hebrew scriptures are one book, not two. Again, in the Christian Bible, they got separated, but they really do work together as one book. This is the last historical event of the Old Testament, 400 years before Christ. And when you close the Old Testament and open the New Testament, you're turning 400 years of time. When we open back up to what? A different kingdom. It's not the Persian kingdom anymore. 
it's the Roman Empire. And in between that 400 years, you got the Greek Empire. And you have now the Gospels being opened up to us when we turn to Matthew chapter 1, of course, which begins with what? Genealogies. Those genealogies are important. The genealogies now link us back to the Old Testament time, and we can follow the lineage of the heritage that led to the Messiah's birth through, um, through Mary, of course, his mother, and Joseph, who would be his stepfather. So we see those things. You get in a whole different discussion with that. But that's where we close the Old Testament historically is Nehemiah and Ezra. So we haven't finished the Old Testament. There's lots of books we haven't talked about. We'll cover them in the next two weeks. Next week, we're going to talk about the, what's called the writings. This is the wisdom literature. This includes Job, Proverbs, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. So these five together, we need to look at them. We're familiar with them in name and look at them and talk about who wrote them, what they were written for, and why they're important and why they're preserved for us in the Scripture today. So Lord willing, we'll come back next week and talk about the writings. And then the following week, we'll talk about the prophets. We'll take a look at those 16 prophets in the, toward the end of our Old Testament and see how they fit. Because you know what we find in the prophets? Some of them were prophets to the northern kingdom before the captivity. Some of them were prophets to the southern kingdom before the captivity. And we'll separate them out for you and talk about their message and what they were sent by the Lord to proclaim to the people of Israel. That's a lot to cover. We did pretty good, though. We covered about 500 years in, uh, in 45 minutes. So I can live with that. Seems like that's the way life goes sometimes, doesn't it? Well, I'll remind you as we close the night, we're praying for and supporting as you can. Thank you for your support for the Appel family and their, and their ministry and service. There are missionaries over in the South Pacific and um, have served there faithfully now for many, many years. And uh, we're, we're thankful to serve with them uh, and support, or, or support them through our prayers and through your gifts uh, that you can provide out the table as you leave today. Well, we'll close there. I hope you have a great week as we turn the calendar over to November. And don't forget about changing your time next week. Our joke around here for many years has been this time next week. It won't be this time next week. So um, hope you'll uh, have a great week. Father, thank you for our time tonight. We come with rejoicing hearts. We see your hand in history when we look at the Bible and what it teaches us. We see it uh, proven over and over again that you are involved with the affairs of man. Individually, like in the lives of Daniel and his friends. Corporately, like in the, in the, um, the nation of Israel. And uh, we just know that in today, you are similarly involved. May we see your hand at work in our lives as we submit and serve you. May we be voices of righteousness for our nation to come back to you and uh, to once again know your blessings. But in it all, Father, we have confidence that you are doing what's right and what is best. And uh, we pray your hand of, of guidance and direction upon us as we go into a new week and even a new month. We'll start this, this in the next days ahead. We do pray for Israel, and uh, we pray for the, um, the conflict there. Uh, and we don't even have words to properly state it, but we pray you'll do a work. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And we pray that you will have your hand upon a people. We pray that you'll protect the innocent in, in this conflict. We pray that you'll protect the missionaries, multitudes of them, uh, some our church supports. We pray that you'll protect them in the ministries that are having an impact in the lives of people during this challenging and difficult time. Give wisdom where it's needed, and we pray that you'll provide peace as you see righteousness brought about. Uh, we ask that you'll be honored as we dismiss and go our ways for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Lord bless everyone. Hope you have a great week.